You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. In this episode, we will hear from Dick Kies. Dick and his wife Marty have worked with Labrie in Switzerland, England, and they founded the branch in Southborough near Boston. This lecture opened our time together and is called Letting God Be God in a Fragmenting World. Well, letting God be God in a fragmenting world. Uh, as, as we've heard, fragmentation is a major theme in countless descriptions of what's going on in the world. You can think of tensions and conflicts within society, within individuals, uh, socially, economically, racially, culturally, educationally, politically, religiously, fractured uh, all over the place. And so we've taken this as a theme. Um, But I want to start with doing a a certain kind of a spin on it, uh, because if one is a Christian trying not just to survive, but to thrive, serving God and make a difference in the world, we need to resist fragmentations within our own faith in order to be able to minister to the fragmentations outside of our faith. There are fragmentations within the Christian faith that that can form that shouldn't be there, uh, that cripple us uh, in our service looking out and cripple us for ourselves. Um, Fragmentations of faith take, or at least the ones that I'm talking about, take the form of false choices. being pushed to choose between two things that God doesn't want to have separated at all. So the two fragmentations I'll be dealing with this morning, the first is the separation of sacred and secular. This is very much an old Labrie theme, and it's uh, uh, one we wanted to nail down at the start of this conference, because in a sense, resolving this issue is kind of the basis for most of the rest of the things we'll be talking about in terms of involvement in our culture, understanding of it and working into it. Uh, the lordship of life or all of life is the Francis Schaeffer's phrase that came out very, very early. And it's that that is the solution to the alienation of sacred and secular. That'll be the first theme. The second theme is the fragmentation, and I'll explain this more later when we get there, uh, between discipleship being motivated by ideas as opposed to by desires and splitting those two things. Uh, doctrine, ideas from motivation, desire, love, care, so on. I mean, I'll, I'll lay that out more when we get there. The place to start, I think, here is to let God be God, which means we start with a strong enough view of God, uh, enough, a great enough vision of who God is, that he is the one that holds our faith together. So, to launch in. Who is God? He is independent. He is self-sufficient. He's the one, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, created out of nothing, into nothing. Uh, When the Bible tells the people introduced to God for the first time, to his revelation in words, almost invariably starts with the 
God as creator and its implications. The book itself starts with, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Page 1, verse 1. Uh, in the New Testament, when Paul talks to perhaps some of the few people you see addressed in the New Testament who have never heard anything of, of God's word revelation before, speaking to the, to the philosophers in Athens, uh, Paul says, What you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and, and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and everything. This is why theologians uh, describe God as being from himself. Everything else in the creation is from him, because he's the creator of it. We are from him, but he is from himself. He's not dependent on anything, anywhere, and certainly not on us. The truth is the opposite. We're dependent on him for everything, life and breath and everything. That's pretty basic, life and breath. Uh, that's the, uh, that is the starting point for one who is uh, the Lord of heaven and earth, so to us to understand what it is. That loyalty to him does not exist at all unless it outranks all other loyalties. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't, it's not loyalty at all to God unless it's greater than our loyalty to everything else. Okay, getting at the sacred secular fragmentation. First I want to say... Uh, a biblical picture that the sacred secular fragmentation breaks and, and, and uh, uh, pulls away from them. And I want to uh, resist that. But as we look at the Lordship of Christ over all of life, I'm going to give you a non-fragmented baseline here, just very briefly. Uh, God is the creator. He, the creation was good. He shaped it and ordered it. It culminated with the creation of a man and a woman. Uh, made in his image and his likeness, fearfully and wonderfully made. No sooner that they, they were created, that he gave them work to do, uh, continuing the work that he, God, had already started, having dominion, ordering, and caring for creation, telling them uh, to have children. We, they need help with children, too. Uh, put the, the children were to go to work. Uh, they were privileged to work as stewards in God's estate, on God's estate, to fulfill we call the cultural mandate to build culture, to start from, not, from no culture and to build uh, culture, to, make, to start off naming animals, making a shelter, making tools, clothes, whatever they needed. It's interesting, God gave them something to wear right after the fall, but that's the last God gave them in terms of clothing. They were meant to make their own clothes after that, as with the whole of human culture. Uh, he equipped them to do it, and in doing that, they were reflecting their imageness of God, their likeness to God. Then there's the fall. They rebelled against God, making themselves God's rival. Enter of sin, alienation, brokenness, evil, death. And you see right, tragically, uh, that uh, one son then kills the other. This isn't just a little naughtiness. This is desperately evil and wicked and, and disruptive of, of, God's, of God's plan. Uh, redemption came only through the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection of God's own son, Jesus of Nazareth. So salvation is given to those who come to him in humility and faith, with empty hands, not earning it at all, but simply receiving it as a, as a gift. Um, and the, the task of the cultural mandate 
It was continued on in the church age, as well as building the church, but added to it the task of taking the good news of Jesus to the world, uh, out to everyone needing to hear it. Then on the final day, the day of, of, of renewal of creation, salvation will be completed, the resurrection of the body, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, that's a thumbnail of the, of the story, okay? Uh, and, and the baseline from which I will be outlining a departure. Uh, what is this separation of sacred from secular? What is this all about? So I'm not, now I'm going to be describing something that I don't believe in. I'm resisting. Okay, just don't be confused about what I'm saying here. Uh, uh, it involves a certain definition of sacred and secular that are, that are specific and not necessarily universal. Uh, what is sacred and spiritual and really matters to God are all things that are good, uh, but are, are all things that, that involve addressing God directly, our soul being saved, our personal private relationships with God, our prayer, our Bible study, our worship, our spiritual gifts, our family, our church life, our evangelism. All this is sacred. All this is held in this category. The directly religious things we do as sacred are what really matters to God, we're told, uh, are really close to his heart. What is considered not sacred but secular is everything else. The rest of life, the rest of involvement in creation, politics, the arts, music, the life of the mind, in general, law, agriculture, the business world, uh, medicine, economics, sexuality, science in general, environment, social justice, you could go on and on and on like this. All this is not involved in the direct relationship to God specifically in the same sense that, that say, prayer is. But he cares less about these things since they're not directly related to him. They're not directly engaging what is eternal in their, in their essence. Uh, where we in Labrie see this view most is in people's views of vocation. A lot of people come to Labrie uh, with big questions about identity and vocation. What do I do with my life? I've got all these choices. We have choices that people in world history have never dreamed of having uh, before at, at, to, a, to, a, to a traumatic level. The, 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 the level of choices, the number of choices themselves, that, that is, is a problem. But what the sacred secular vision of life uh, that I'm disagreeing with supplies is a pyramid of vocations, a hierarchy of vocations, which is looked to, because vocation is so confusing, there's so many options out there, having a pyramid, a, a paradigm of how to understand it is a great relief to many people. It's very attractive to people because it tells them, okay, how can I please God? This is how I can please God, and I have it in my paradigm. At the top of the pyramid of those who really mean business with God are pastors, missionaries, evangelists, at least full-time Christian workers. That's the main thing. Your full-time uh, Christian work. This is, this is, if you want to really please God and be close to God, this is where you want to end up. The next level down, less, less uh, committed fully, is serving God is, is more of the helping professions. Teaching, medicine, nursing, whatever. Uh, social work. Helping people, at least. Uh, that's the next one, the next level down. And the third level down is people still less fully actually really uh, dedicated to God is uh, to be in the corporate world of business, and sciences, politics, law, the arts, and so on. Uh, work and involvement in these areas is not wrong. They, it needs to be done. It's necessary for society to function. But it's less important and less pleasing to God. It's less engaging of where his heart really is. These professions are not meant to be loved too much. 
but rather endured because uh, uh, someone needs to do them uh, but uh, unless they can be done in service to the church or the gospel somehow. They're not sinful, it's very clear that, but to be passionately committed to them is to be distracted from your loyalty to Christ. The Bible doesn't give us now I'm breaking out of this thing that I disagree with. Now I'm saying what I do agree with. I just want to make sure we're all uh, on the map here. The Bible does not have this pyramid. It just isn't there. Uh, it never says it's intrinsically better and more close to the heart of God to be an evangelist than a carpenter. Or a farmer. Or a politician. The Apostle Paul even says things like, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we directed you. You know, this honors God. Aspire to that. Not just, we will tolerate if you do it, but aspire to doing this. It does say to be open to wherever God has put you and leads you and serve him there with the conviction that you, as you do your work, are actually doing something that's part of worship. Part of your worship to God. It could be, I often say, there could be some situations when we might trade quite a few theologians, even a few missionaries, for one good plumber. <laughs> and after I, I gave that example before in a lecture, and I was confronted afterwards by a guy who said, yeah, but sometimes you really need a theologian more than a plumber. And he's absolutely right. Totally right. There are times when I need one theologian more than an army of plumbers. Uh, but we, what we need, what God wants, is good theologians and good plumbers and good missionaries and good electricians and good farmers. And serving God with their gifts, with their opportunities, with what is available to them in a way that honors them in gratitude to the gifts they have, gratitude to, to the substance they have to deal with. And, and uh, because God wants human communities to thrive because he loves people made in his image. God wants communities to thrive. For communities to thrive, you need all sorts of different people, gifts, applications of those gifts, and so on. One of our students asked me, and I give this illustration again and again, because it was so illustrative to me, uh, came up, I was talking about these things, he was very frustrated with my lack of spiritual clarity or something like this, and he said, okay, I really need to know, which is more spiritual to do, to pray or to wash dishes? And I disappointed him. And he was assuming that anyone with an IQ of 45 would know that it's more spiritual to pray than to wash dishes. Okay? So it, but it comes very much from that assumption, uh, from a sacred-secular fracture, that praying is on the sacred side, washing dishes is on the secular side. Uh, any idiot knows this. And I said, I can't tell you which is actually more intrinsically pleasing to God. Uh, because I can imagine occasions when it could actually be sin for you to pray instead of washing dishes. Like, when it's your turn to wash dishes. <laughs> and we know, we have a lot of experience, we can speak from deep experience in Labrie about dishwashing, because there's a lot of it to be done, and it has to be shared. And so it's, it's, uh, it, it's a felt problem. Uh, you can't say one is intrinsically more spiritual and more pleasing to God than the other. If I do say praying is intrinsically more spiritual to God, I begin to feel like a Platonist, a follower of Plato, who says, turn to higher things. Never mind the material world and lower things. Let the dishes stack up. Never, it's, it's, it's unimportant. This is a part of the world that just doesn't matter that much. 
Don't let yourself be bugged by this. Do what is higher. Uh, but that's Plato speaking. That's not the Apostle Paul or not, not the Bible. Uh, if I say dishwashing is more intrinsically pleasing to God than praying, I begin to feel like a Marxist uh, who says the material world is all that exists and, and praying is something Christians have thought up to get somebody else to wash their dishes. Uh, it seems that both praying and, and dishwashing can be either honoring to God or dishonoring to God, or actually sinful, depending on all sorts of variables. Uh, it's easy to sin uh, in our praying or in our dishwashing. All you need to do is to do either of them in order to show off how spiritual you are to potential admirers. Uh, and it's, it's just much deeper, much more difficult, much more complicated than to, to be able to choose one or the other. Back to the baseline. Uh, I want to flag the contrast between the Bible and sac- uh, sacred uh, secular dualism. The God of uh, the Bible spoke, created the universe. We radically collapse and diminish God if we say he's too spiritual to touch or to, to care about activity in this material world. Too spiritual to care about the physical world himself. Uh, as they worked Uh, Adam and Eve worked in the garden. They were continuing the work that God himself had begun. He got his hands dirty working in the material world. I always read a a helpful angle from C.S. Lewis here. He says, there's no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put new life into us. We may think this is rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Well, you see, this is just, a, just such a sane counter to what can very easily be taking us in a very different direction. Uh, when the God of the Bible came and joined the human race personally, it was not as an ascetic holy man. For most of his adult life, he worked as a carpenter. Uh, so the Bible's teaching on the Lordship of Christ over all of life conflicts with this sacred secular dualism. God is the Lord over and cares for the whole of our lives in the whole of this creation, material and non-material. Sacred secular dualism fragments and corrupts the integrity of faith with a false choice. Stop and think for a minute what's happening here. The whole of creation is good. God is challenging us to choose for him in every area. From when we get up in the morning to when we go to sleep at night, we choose for God and and not against God in all, or or against God sometimes, obviously, uh, in every area, everything we touch, everything we do. In thanksgiving, resentment, whatever goes through our minds, whatever we do. Praying or working, we're doing it for, in obedience to God or not. Uh, Instead of that, the sacred secular perspective introduces a fracture between different aspects of God's creation, a division within, within the creation of God. So different parts of the fabric of creation are okay, other parts of the fabric of creation are less okay uh, for, uh, before God. The real conflict that the Bible does talk about, the Bible isn't, as, it isn't about a world with no conflict. Uh, the, Bible, the real conflict that's, that is there in the Bible, from, from start to, well not from very start, but from Genesis 3 on, is, is uh, the moral conflict between good and evil that we experience in every area of his creation, no matter what we're doing. 
in our praying, in our church attendance, in our working, in our driving that car, or whatever. We are doing this in obedience to God, in out of thankfulness to God, in relationship to God, or resisting God, avoiding God, uh, trying, trying to uh, find substitutes for God or whatever, no matter what we're doing. So the moral opposition is a choice of direction in every area of life, for God or eliminating God. Uh, a moral opposition for or against God in decisions we make everywhere. Nothing is neutral or irrelevant uh, to God. All is given to him under his lordship or not. So separating what does and does not please God does not run, is not a line that runs between prayer and dishwashing, between evangelism and carpentry, or between Christian ministry and running a business that serves the common good. Uh, they are all good things to do. They all need to be done well. Uh, not just done, but done well in service to God, with effort put into it and, and, and energy put into it and thought put into it. Uh, it does run the line separating good from evil, separating what's pleasing to God and what's not pleasing to God, does but run between serving others and refusing to serve others, between generosity and greed, between serving, serving in humility and serving in arrogance. Any activity, public or private, internal, or, or, or activity is done in, a, in some connection with where do we stand in with God, uh, obeying or disobeying Jesus in any of the things and the tasks we do. Now I'll mention just two caveats here. Uh, first, of course, there are some occupations that are intrinsically evil, things that are explicitly sinful. Robbery, prostitution, dealing drugs, running a mob, extortion, and so on. We list all sorts of things that are explicitly forbidden. I'm not saying that they're not. That is, that is evil, but we have the revelation of God telling us it is evil, and we shouldn't uh, be, be, be touching these things. They intrinsically violate God's law, and so are sin. That's the first caveat. The second caveat is also many warnings in the Bible to not let ourselves follow a God substitute in anything in creation and not take anything in creation and turn it into a god and treat it as god. Um, this is not because creation isn't good. Creation is good. Uh, but it's not, and it's not unimportant to God. It is good and important to him, but it isn't God. We, we should treat God as God. Don't treat anything in his creation as God. We treat only God as God and his good creation as the good creation which he loves. Those are the two caveats here. Uh, costs of the sacred secular fragmentation, which are heavy, and I'm going to, so I'm going to dwell for some time on these. Um, following a, the sacred secular paradigm, wants to, in a good way, we, we, I'm 100% behind, to emphasize evangelism, because evangelism needs to be done. We need to take the gospel out to the world. Uh, but at the same time, the sacred secular paradigm can, and often does, lead Christians to prioritize life in such a way that they live in quarantined, ghettoized Christian groups and learn to talk sometimes a, a, a Christian, an evangelical Christian dialect and uh, don't know many people who are not Christians because they live in this, this tight, uh, I would call it tribal uh, uh, world don't get to know people as friends who aren't Christians. Make, but that, my point is that makes evangelism much more difficult and, and an unnatural uh, thing to do and, and so something that's more formalized. Uh, 
The result also is that it can lead to not seeing, it doesn't lead to it, but it is, not seeing work in society as something that, that God values. And to be excited about it because God values it. And doing it is a service to God and it's pleasing to God. Um, if you don't think that is, is valuable to God as, as your own private prayer life, your direct religious activity, you're less motivated to do constructive, helpful, interesting, creative sort of things in, as salt and light in society, to reach out into our world and serve God in society, to help to heal some of the fragmentation that surrounds us as salt and light in the world and witness to God and, and to Christ uh, to a skeptical and cynical world. Also, many Christians believing that their working life is merely secular and so isn't so important to God tend to value their own work in their own eyes. I've had so many people tell me, well, I'm not a, I don't have gifts to be a preacher, so I'm just, doing, I'm just earning money to pay my bills. And, and that's after 30, 40 years in the workplace uh, with no sense that their work has any particular meaning before God because it's just lowly work to do. Uh, as opposed to being something explicitly Christian and, and that's uh, supposedly uh, pleasing to God. Uh, a, a danger here is, is also that if we believe that God is really interested in the, the, uh, this sacred category of just my private relationship to him and the various religious things that I do, then I don't need to think very much about what, what the shape of my work is in the, in, in the world. And I can begin to drift into really misunderstanding what my work is. I can drift into the idols that are ever so present and, and exert enormous pressure on us and, and begin to lose my grip on what God really wants me to do in the workplace and begin to drift into dishonesty and corruption. I, I had experience, uh, we were doing a conference in Korea to leadership groups, and the front row, there were a whole lot of very, very distinct, distinct, distinguished businessmen in the front row, looking almost intimidating because they were so uh, strong and knew each other and so on. And I mentioned things like this, and then suddenly they said, erupted in talking to each other in the middle of my lecture, loudly. And I, I quickly looked, I wanted to, do I have to, Pull the escape here. Where's the there's there's a door here, you know. And I wasn't sure what was going on. It turns out they weren't against what I'd said at all. They were very much behind what I'd said. But that week, a dozen elders in some of the big megachurches in Seoul, who were top business leaders, had all and, and people who almost to the one had been attending four o'clock a.m. prayer meetings every day of the week had all been busted for embezzlement and fraud uh, uh, just that week. It took total scandal across the television and all the newspapers. And Christ was scandalized. Because here they are, Christian, great Christian leaders. And what are they doing? What a hypocrisy is this? But I see, I, I, you, know, you can't say a neat cause and effect here, but I, isn't this a danger? If we don't see what we do in the workplace is really intimately connected to, to God and his will for us, and we need to work out how do we do it? How can we honor him there? If it's just a throwaway time, and I'm influenced by the idols that are enormously powerful in our society, determining what success is and what success is not, uh, then this is, this is a, uh, not, a, not a small danger, I would say. Uh, another sort of angle is I remember Mark Knoll saying, the historian Mark Knoll, complaining about Christians who are proud of saying that the only thing they need to know about the world is what the Bible says about how it will end. 
Now, that is just overwhelmingly sad. That's overwhelmingly sad for them, for their curiosity and creativity that doesn't get out of bed, uh, and, 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 and all that they don't do to encourage themselves and others. So, we start out here with who is God and what do we have to, uh, with whom, who is the God with whom we have to do? He is our creator and Lord. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it and the world and those who live in it. And he cares about it all. There's no tension between spirit and matter, sacred and secular, praying and dishwashing. If I had more time, which I don't because I um, have more to say than I want, uh, than I have time for, I would look at stories of some people who are doing, who are good examples of this. I'll just mention three names, which I'll, I'll pick up later on. Uh, people who've kept God as the Lord uh, over all of life and made a huge difference in the world as a result. We all turn to, our favorite example would be Wilberforce, uh, who realized that the Lordship of Christ included his service in Parliament. He didn't need to, uh, uh, to, to, to do this, but he... he uh, uh, connected himself with the end of the slave trade in England and has a tremendous example uh, there and in other areas uh, of English life because the Lordship of Christ demanded his work as a politician, his work creatively to think of where can I use the influence that I have. Uh, second example, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who saw the Lordship of Christ called him to make enormous risks to tell the truth of what he'd seen and realized uh, in Soviet communism. And I think his role was significant in the, uh, the peaceful collapse of the Iron Curtain uh, in 1989 in, in, between, in, in Western Europe and in, in the Soviet Union. Uh, but, but, but a huge uh, Christian conviction, I've got to tell the truth, and risking his neck again and again and again uh, to do this. Or, third example, Martin Luther King, Jr., the Lordship of Christ over all of life included racial justice, voting rights, housing, busing, schooling, all sorts of, quote, secular, unquote, things, but had everything to do with, this is real. This is real for real people. People are suffering here. We've got to do something about it. Um, and and leading to starting the civil rights movement. Uh, and we have a different country to live in as a result of that, and greater respect for God and his people. So we've spoken about God's lordship in the whole of creation. Now I want to shift to the second part of the lecture, uh, Roman numeral three here. Um, uh, and and uh, look at God's lordship over the whole self. Another false choice. Let me explain what this I mean, what this means. This is, I'm looking at a practice rather than a, <clears throat> a, um, a, a well-dwelled theology. But, uh, for many, a Christian practice seems to assume that if you believe the basic doctrines about God, sin, salvation by grace, indwelling Holy Spirit, final consummation, and if you understand basic Christian ethics, then you're good to go. That's all you need, and you could go and be a disciple of Christ. These teachings, these ideas, these doctrines are all you need to, for growth in discipleship. Some complain, I think rightly so, that this is very cognitive. This, thinks, this assumes that it's all just ideas and accepting the truth of certain ideas. Um, getting your doctrine, your ethics straight, and they'll lead, they'll lead you to whatever growth you need. Some criticize this as saying this is view of humanity as 
as having as being a brain on a stick, or John Stott calls it being a polywog, meaning that you, it's all head and not much else. Uh, 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 the fragmenting that I want to resist here, I don't want to just trash that idea, uh, I want to re resist here is the idea that ideas and thinking are all that matters, and we forget about desiring and caring, which gets forgotten, which I would try to maintain is an integral part of discipleship. There's a kind of fragmentation that says that God works with ideas, that's all we need to pay attention to. It affirms the good biblical emphasis on, on vital importance of what is true and good, doctrine and ethics, but misses out on, you know, though it affirms what is true and good, it misses out on whether you hunger and thirst for that truth and goodness. Uh, and this is something I'm very much, uh, I think we need to be committed to reviving. Again, another false choice. Jesus taught that discipleship means that we need to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, the whole shebang, uh, everything, uh, the whole of who we are. And we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not just to do things out of duty uh, or fear. Augustine claimed that the most important thing you can know about a person, it's interesting to ask yourself, what is the most important thing to know about another person? And he said, the most important thing to know about another person is what do they love most? Not what they believe, what do you, what do you love? Uh, he talked about we're not just thinking creatures, homo sapiens, uh, we're more importantly desiring creatures. Interesting notion to think of desi being desiring as something that distinguishes us as human beings. Uh, in Proverbs it says that we, if we want to know and fear God, we need to search for him with the passion of people hunting for hidden treasure. Think about it. If you, I've read a few articles about what people do hunting for hidden treasure now in the world today. And it's unbelievable what they do. The risk they take, the money they spend. The, the people die doing it, uh, looking for treasure that's not even there. Uh, but th this, is, this is what Paul, or rather what the writer of Proverbs is getting at. Uh, the, 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 to, to look for it as, as they hunt for hidden treasures. And an interesting question I, I put to you, and we'll be coming back to this, but how do you teach someone desire? How do you teach desire? It's, you can teach doctrine, you can teach ethics, you can teach people to, to believe it, necessarily, or to do it, the ethics-wise, but how do you teach desire? Uh, it's a real challenge. Uh, you can't just command it, you can't just memorize it. And we'll come back and touch on this in a few minutes. See, we all have a certain, and this is a key point here I want to emphasize, <clears throat> we have a certain sensibility or awareness of greatness, of excellence, heroism, honor, glory. All those words in my mind overlap with each other. Greatness, excellence, heroism, honor, glory. And we would like to make that our own somehow. We seek some sort of greatness. We all may differ as to what's greatness for us, but we all seek some sort of greatness, uh, unless we're really uh, withdrawn from life itself. Um, we seek some sort of excellence, heroism, honor, and glory. We would like to make it our own. It's built into our imaginations. Why? It's not an accident, because the attribute of God, which, most, which describes his excellence in every area, is the word glory which means 
the Hebrew word means radiance and brilliance, but also gravity, uh, substance, substantialness, solidity. So it's too, you know, for us, radiance is very flash and it's gone. You know, 50 minutes or 15 minutes of fame and it's gone. Or you think of the, the flashes of, uh, of, of, of glory that go around in the world today. Uh, that isn't what, what, what the glory of God is. It's radiance, but it's grounded in, in substance, in something really uh, uh, in great gravity. We are made, and that's this is God. We, we are made in God's image and likeness, and we too have the capacity for glory at a finite level and a hunger for it. But because of sin, the capacity to radically distort it. It's interesting that Paul describes sin in Romans 3 as falling short of the glory of God. Not just the law of God, which that's true too, but the glory of God is somehow bigger. It's God's whole excellence. Sin is falling short of the excellence, the wonder, the glory of God. Uh, we speak of, of every human being in the brief uh, of, as a glorious ruin. Uh, we're glorious by creation. We're a ruin because of what sin has done to us. Uh, we you can't understand human nature without seeing these two sides of human nature. Absolutely vital uh, to understand it that way. But the glory is part of it because of who we are by creation. I'm going to give a New Testament example which is kind of a psychological... I want to think of it as a psychological study to emphasize what the difference between two different, these two different things. The example of Herod Antipas in Mark chapter 6. Uh, he was feeling heroic on the day of his birthday party. And powerful respected, looked up to, uh, and so on. Uh, uh, his wife's daughter danced beautifully at this birthday party. And he was stood up and as a great heroic gesture saying, uh, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. Because uh, it's so beautiful uh, that, that what she's done. He was conscious of his own glory, his own heroism, uh, his own wealth, prosperity, property, respect, and so on, uh, up to half my kingdom, we give it away. Uh, and again, as a Roman leader, a benefactor, a patron of the arts, that's a big thing in the world today. He, he was a patron of the arts in, in his great offer, promised to her. Uh, but, as you know the story, uh, this young girl, uh, after dancing, went and got some coaching from her mother and came back into the birthday party and said, I'll tell you what I want. I want John the Baptist's head on a plate. And it says, Herod was deeply grieved. Deeply grieved. He was, because he was caught between his moral convictions, which was that John the Baptist is a righteous man, and he was scared of him because of his righteousness, uh, a righteous man and a prophet of God, and, on the other hand, his own desire to appear heroic in front of all the beautiful people in Jerusalem uh, on this birthday party. Uh, it would have been utterly humiliating for him to, and, and unheroic, inglorious, and shameful for him to, in front of a big crowd to say, actually, oh, I'm sorry, I can't give you that. Please ask for something else. Yeah, he couldn't, that would be utterly unheroic, just demolishing his status, his stature, and so on. Uh, but I, what I want to get at is that there are two things going on. There are two yardsticks in this guy that, were, that he's caught between. A yardstick of moral reality, right and wrong, he knew it was utterly wrong to do. John the Baptist is a righteous man. Another yardstick having to do with glory and shame. Glory and, 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 and lack of glory. Heroism and shame. Uh, and he was caught in a crossfire between the two because these things two jarred against each other. 
his moral sensibility and convictions, and then his powerful need for glory to be heroic. And uh, they were against each other, and as we know from the story, his idea, his desire to be glorious and heroic overpowered his moral consciousness, and so he gave the order to have John beheaded. Uh, overpowered his moral convictions. Fully aware that it was morally wrong, but it was more important to him to appear glorious in, in this way. Um, and, and, and to me, this is, it's really important to pay attention to what is your sense of glory, and where is it coming from? What is your sense of glory? What is heroic for you? What is greatness for you? And where is it coming from? Because he, as we, I got interested in this by a lot of our students, what I could see would come as Christians, and their, their moral morality was all from the Ten Commandments, from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but their heroism was straight from Hollywood and Madison Avenue. And they are caught in a crossfire between these two things. And heroism and desire for glory is no small deal. Uh, as, with, as with Herod, it outpulled his moral uh, character. And so I'm, I'm putting this on the table because I think there's something much, very powerful to deal with when we're dealing with Christian growth that often isn't touched. Uh, so we need to know what, what, what is our sense of glory and what is it telling us and where is it coming from. Pascal is someone who didn't ignore it. Uh, he is very much attuned to it. He said to his pensées, the greatest baseness of man is the pursuit of glory but it is also the greatest mark of his excellence. And what he means there is just what I've been saying. Your glory can mean anything to you. So it can be something that lifts you up into excellence. If your glory is in sync with your morality, it lifts you toward excellence morally in every way. It can be a huge uh, advantage to you in your moral development. If it, if it fights against your morality, uh, it, will, it will oppose you at every moment. You'll be caught in a crossfire all the time. Uh, and so it, the, the whole question is, what is glorious to you? What is honorable to you? What do you pursue? Because what we're dealing with is, what do you want to become? What are you trying to become? And, and a voice of what you're trying to become is going to be there in, e in each one of us. It has enormous power to shape our lives. And what we're talking about here is that, uh, what I'm trying to get into in terms of our view of discipleship is that God is interested in the redemption of our imagination. Uh, not just giving us correct ideas, not just giving us uh, correct ideas of right and wrong, but, but to work within us and to redeem our imagination. Uh, Christian teaching doesn't just address partial persons, brains on a stick, but, uh, or some sort of dutiful compliance to the God of the Bible, but he wants to aspire us to goodness, because goodness is both true and compelling. It ought to move us, uh, because it's to, it's to do with excellence and glory. God's, that God wants to redeem our ideas for sure, but also our con and our convictions of what is true. But he also wants to be moved to engage our sense of glory and desiring what is true. Um, redeeming our imagination. The Bible gives us more than theological propositions and moral rules. It gives us food for our imagination, uh, both negatively and positively, uh, so that we get uh, glory and heroism in sync with our morals. I'm going to give you just very quick examples of the negative and the, po and the positive in terms of how the Bible helps engage your imagination and helps just engage your whole sense of, of glory and honor here. Negatively, it inspires aversion. Here you have the, op the two things, aversion and aspiration, are the two things against each other. God helps us in the Bible to house clean our false heroes, our pseudo-heroes, our vain glory. 
Did you ever notice that the Bible never, ever allows evil to be glamorous or attractive in the the narratives of the Bible or in the uh, one-liners that you get through Proverbs or Psalms or something like that in the prophets? Evil is never allowed to be glamorous in the scripture. Compare this to modern literature. Compare this to modern advertising. Compare this to the intake uh, that most of us have in the modern world. Uh, the Bible often uses the, word, the term fool for someone who is being exposed as a false hero. Uh, and the word fool it just has nothing to do with level of intelligence. The word fool has to do with uh, someone who is shown to be a loser and a jerk. Uh, it's meant to stimulate your sense of aversion, stimulate your sense of what you would do if you saw a rattlesnake in the road in front of you. You would not walk up to it. You would back off and find another place to go. Uh, you'd rather walk over it. Uh, what you, you wanted, it, the Bible wants us to jump back from the, from the pseudo-hero that will lead us down the garden path that, Her- that Herod Antipas uh, was, was stuck in. Um, think of Jesus' example of the rich fool who was a hero of investment capital, great heroic system today. After great financial success, he was planning to retire and party. That's what he was uh, that's what he said he wanted to do. But before he had, in Jesus' parable, before he had time for one party, he got a tap on the shoulder and said, tonight your soul is required of you. And he dies. And Jesus doesn't call him greedy or naughty or bad. He just says, you fool. You loser. You lost everything that you value. On your own terms, you've lost everything. It's not just you violated God's commandments. Who knows what he did in terms of how he treated his money. But he was bankrupt in the only area that it really mattered. Uh, he's self-deceived. He was a loser uh, and self-deceived in the only way, only place that really mattered to his life. The whole, and I don't have time to do this, but the whole, there's a whole theology of the fool and the fool's cousins in, in the scripture, particularly in the wisdom literature, that is... That is given to your imagination to help you unload or house clean pseudo-heroism. Uh, heroes that, that people that are looked to as heroic but are not. And, and they, they all come up with egg on their face. Uh, they all come up uh, being shown to be uh, not someone you would want to uh, aspire to. It's all to dethrone the pseudo-heroes. And it's, it's all, what I'm trying to say is it's all dealing with it, dealing with your imagination. It's not giving you a long... Uh, abstract discourses on how you should not follow the wrong heroes. Uh, it's hitting you with examples of the wrong heroism uh, showing up with egg on their face. Okay, that's the negative side. The positive side is aspiration. Uh, we are images of God, but we're broken and bent by sin. We're glorious ruins. Jesus is the perfect image of God, and he walked around among people like us. He saves us who trust in him through his crucifixion, through his resurrection. We receive the gift of salvation from him. He offers us uh, his life as an example for us to follow. The imitation of Christ, I think, is profoundly neglected, especially by Protestants. Uh, uh, There's much more there than than I think most Christian views in Christian life deals with. Uh, The New Testament teaching on it is very, very deep. It's very important because what he lives is true glory. What he lives is human excellence. And he wants us to follow him. Now, I mentioned six things that are explicitly taught in the New Testament. 
the imitation of Christ isn't just some generic, you know, wear, wear sandals or something like this, have a beard. Uh, uh, I, I had a friend, uh, someone uh, in, in London who was, well, he came and said, Jesus is my hero. I said, well, that's great. What, what does that mean to you? He says, well, uh, it's, it's that he didn't have a job. He kicked the rat race of the working. So he was unemployed, and so he was heroic because he was unemployed. This guy, needless to say, was unemployed. This was pre-Margaret Thatcher days of England where, where uh, you could get more, paid more on the dole than you could in any starting salary for, for most manual labor jobs. Um, and uh, Anyway, it, we don't just look and guess and say, oh yes, I'll imitate this in Jesus' name. This is, these are things that are explicitly taught. I've given you the references. I don't, I'd like, love to have time to, to go after each one of those. But, but uh, humility, love, service, forgiveness, willingness to suffer unjustly, courage. These are virtues of character. Jesus said in Luke 6, a, a disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully qualified will be like the teacher. Not teach like the teacher, develop some of the skills of the teacher, or something like will be like the teacher. This means it's reaching deep into things, into exactly this, into character. Um, this it is glory, because Jesus is the perfect image of God. Uh, this, these virtues will never restrict anybody's legitimate freedom, because Jesus was human excellence itself. As we imitate him, we will be more the individuals that we, that we were created to be, inching toward glory ourselves in our daily lives. Uh, and, and, and the individuals that only we can be because we, we, are, uh, we are one of a kind. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate hero, but he's not the only hero. His followers can be partial heroes as well. Uh, heroes to each other. They can show in small and imperfect ways something of, of Christ's glory. And you can see that in the people sitting next to you in this room. If you watch them for very long, you will see elements in their lives that show something of the glory of Christ, the glory of God, that you can watch, that you can imitate, that you can learn from. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, by which he meant, insofar as I imitate Christ, watch and learn and treat me as a visual aid. Insofar as, he's not claiming to be perfect at all. Uh, He's saying, watch and and you will learn something. Hebrews 11, the whole chapter on heroes of the faith. Um, It's a chapter filled with deeply flawed people. The people who read the book of Hebrews for the first time knew perfectly well Uh, of all their flaws which are throughout the whole Old Testament but the flaws aren't recorded here the the acts that these flawed people did of a real heroic faith that influenced the the whole nation before God are mentioned there and that's what you're meant to look at and that's what you're meant to learn from we can learn and be inspired and moved by each other if we have the eyes eyes to see and the hearts to imitate Christ-likeness that surrounds us in the lives of others even though we're all deeply flawed. He goes on in Hebrews 13, 7, which is, again, it's the shrewdness, psychological shrewdness here of the scriptures is is wonderful. So Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word, spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Don't try and imitate their life. You can't possibly imitate their life. You don't have their genes you don't have their education. 
You don't have their marriage partner or lack of marriage partner. You don't have a zillion things that your leaders have. But you can't, and you kill yourself. You work yourself into a wreck if you try and imitate their life. God doesn't want clones anyway. But you can imitate their trust in God, and that stretches you. Imitate their faith, and it stretches you. It'll make you a larger person, a deeper person, better grasp on If you watch the, the, the fruit of someone's life and imitate their faith. I'm trying to show in the second part that we can't afford to fragment thinking and ideas from love and desire. Again, that's another false choice. We need both. We can't fragment theological doctrines from God's glory and excellence. There's a a wonderful passage uh, illustrating this uh, at the end of Philippians 4. Uh, which I'll read. Finally, my beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Now think of how Paul begins. Think about whatever is true. That is doctrine. That is teaching. You know, people don't like the word doctrine anyway. That's too bad. But it's, 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 it's vitally important. We can maybe think of better words, whatever, the, the less offensive. But the theological ideas and teachings without which the church would have collapsed without Christian people working out carefully and, and diligently and faithfully what is actually true uh, and how we can understand it and, and fight for it. Uh, Paul spent his life fighting for doctrinal truths, among a lot of other things. Think of the arguments in Galatians or something like in Romans. Um, uh, <clears throat> Christian doctrines, uh, but without these basic truths, uh, I think there'd be no Christianity at all. So we need to meditate on what is true. But then he goes on to expand that, what, to include anything and everything worthy of praise, of excellence, worthy of praise. He's calling us to look for glory, to find glory and excellence in the world, beauty in the world. Look for beauty, find it, grasp it, meditate on it, the beauty of it. This opens the door for, as many artists have focused on this, as you probably know, many artists have focused on this passage and found in it the affirmation of the arts and the function, not just the, the artists themselves, but the function of arts for all of us and the gift that art is for everybody and why it's not just a, 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 something to do with entertainment or something or decoration, it's something we need because we need beauty to be, to be made deeper and richer human beings through beauty. Uh, let your imagination take in all that's worthy of, of, your, of love and desire and gratitude. Meditate on these things as gifts of God. They will help you love and desire the right things. Uh, Ben will be lecturing, the last lecture of this conference, actually, on longing. He'll be developing longing much more than I have to hear, but that's going to be, uh, it's interesting how this fits together with this lecture, but that'll be the last lecture of the conference. But, but uh, again, how longings can be redeemed. Uh, finally, Paul reminds them at the very end of this passage of the dynamic of imitation. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. He's telling them to imitate him again. Uh, this kind of imitation brings us, and I want to just do a little bit of time on this, uh, to the presence and the need for community. 
The idea of imitation in the New Testament shows that there's a real community in which Christians can learn not just from books or each other's teaching, but from, get this, the narrative of each other's lives. We're given to learn from the narrative of each other's lives, starting with the narrative of the life of Christ, but the narrative of each other's lives. You need community to make that happen. You need a community that fostered and nurtured, nurtures aspiration and imitation. Paul, uh, if Paul expected them to keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, he had to be hanging out a lot with those people. He did. He hung out a lot with those people in, in, in Thessalonica. Uh, or rather in, in Philippi, but in, in, I'm about to to, to talk about what he says in Thessalonica to the church in Thessalonica uh, this, you don't do this when the acquaintances are just casual and look at the second quote here which is the church in Thessalonica uh, uh, you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us of the Lord and of the Lord for in spite of persecution received, received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you became, an ex- you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. Now, this is interesting. Uh, think of what was communicated here. What kind of persons we proved to be among you. Whatever it was, it made them want to be like Paul and the apostles. It made them want to be like that. Uh, he inspired them to imitate the apostles. And then, the Thessalonian church's example turned out to be something the whole church in Macedonia imitated. So they're looking at each other for what they can learn from each other. Not just their teaching, but their lives. Everything, every part of their lives, their teaching included. The New Testament, uh, what I'm saying, the New Testament church was a culture of imitation. But it could only be that because of the, it was a substantial reality of community. You don't do that with strangers who just shake hands once, uh, once a week or something and then go their separate ways. Uh, Paul, when he wrote, again, back to Philippians, uh, Epaphroditus, it was probably the one who carried the letter of Philippians back to, the, back to Philippi. But Paul couldn't resist telling the Philippian church a little bit about this guy who was the messenger uh, who would uh, come from their church. Uh, he said, welcome him in the Lord with all joy and honor such people because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services which you could not give me. He's telling them to notice glory when there's glory to be seen. He's telling them to notice reality of faith and courage and heroism and, and, and service and commitment and love uh, when it's there. Notice it. Don't forget it. Learn from the life of this servant. He, he's helping them understand real heroism. Uh, honor people like that. Celebrate them. Redeem your imaginations and imitate them and you'll become more like Jesus. I, I think uh, just a quick footnote here, maybe just because I come from Massachusetts, but what Ralph Waldo Emerson did a, a, a job on the idea of imitation. He, he discredited the idea of imitation. Uh, he said, he wrote a, a, a famous essay saying, you are such a one-of-a-kind individual that you should not, you belittle yourself if you imitate anybody. You are the original. Don't imitate anybody. Don't touch that. You just develop who you are yourself. And, and enough people have believed that and seen imitation as unintegrity or inauthentic somehow 
that uh, I think it's been a discouragement. Maybe just to people in New England, but I think it's gone out to, to uh, more, more of a, a wide audience. But it's, it's rubbish. It really is rubbish because it's without there being a one model of human excellence available to us. Uh, how can we be foolish enough to, to ignore it if there's a model of, of, of excellence laid out for us, before us, from the very creator who made us, uh, who we hurt ourselves if we don't imitate what he has to show us. And we, we, we uh, shrink ourselves if we don't follow uh, what he came to tell us and show us. Um, remember we, uh, when we asked a few minutes ago, how in the world do you teach desire? Well, I would say you can't, because uh, it must be learned indirectly. And Christian community is the natural place for it to indirectly happen. Uh, to teach the right ideas, not just imagination, to teach ideas, and also hungers uh, and <coughs> desires. To grow in the right sense of respect and aspiration for glory, for truth, for heroism. Christian community takes many shapes. In churches it can happen. Extended families, ad hoc uh, groups, intentional communities. But it will happen where hospitality happens, shared meals happen, sharing life happens. Breaking down age segregation. If my wife was here, she'd give a big uh, plug for breaking down age segregation. Our culture segregates ages because of its own convenience and economic gain and so on horrendously. And it misses the opportunity to, to teach. The teaching could happen. The church does not need to do that. The church doesn't need to comply with that. But, but mixing generations is, is important. If we're talking about communicating desire, we need to learn from the narratives of each other's lives and grow to want to imitate Christ-likeness in others. And we have a, if, we, we, if we've got to do that, we have to live in close enough quarters with other people who are Christians, close enough quarters with other people who are Christians who grow, who suffer, who hope, who love, who pray, who worship, who grieve, who fear, who doubt, who struggle, and see victory. All that, all that messiness of life, we have to be sort of seeing it, being with it, being with people in this way. And, and the, the isolation of, that's so prevalent in the modern world and too much in the modern church is really something that we need to overcome if we want to uh, gain on this. Okay, I just, just to try and pull this together. Um, if I can pull together the two parts of this lecture. Uh, you remember the examples we started out with and the, the people uh, embracing the Lordship of Christ over all of life rather than uh, at the sacred secular uh, division. Uh, I want to say uh, three things about the three guys that I mentioned, Wilberforce, Solzhenitsyn, and, and uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, three, three points on each of them, and I'll just say a word about each of them. Uh, they each shared, one, a high view of the Lordship of Christ over all of life. Uh, they had a green light from God uh, it, to their, for their curiosity and creativity in his service and the moral sensitivity was going on in the world around them. Uh, they had, and as a result, had instrumental roles in bringing good in society, and important changes, really important changes. Some of the most important changes in my lifetime are, are, are just the changes that they were, not, not, uh, not will before us, I'm not that old, but, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, Martin Luther King and, 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 and Solzhenitsyn 
uh, if you think about the changes in civil rights in this country, the change in the collapse of the, much of the communist world, huge historical changes, these people had a major role to play in it. So that's the first point. They were free with the Lordship of Christ over all of life to use every gift they had, all their passion, all their energy, and so on, to, to, to follow this. Point two, none of them stood alone, but came out of communities of people of like mind. Without which, and this is totally speculative, but I want, I want you to just think about to, to, to speculate. Without the, the people who stood with them, we here might never have heard of any of them. In other words, the impact of their life was not from their individual just being fantastic performers, uh, but had to do with backing of other people, other Christians, other people who understood with them, worked with them. And I'll just mention a little bit about that as, as we go uh, along. Uh, third point, their contributions were profound witnesses for Christ, building the desire and hunger for righteousness and making Christ-likeness glorious to people. Uh, Christian virtues believable, Christian virtues attractive rather than unattractive, uh, Christian virtues heroic to enormous numbers of people. All three of them had major contributions to that in this way. So I'll just mention uh, each of the three for a moment. Wilberforce's accomplishments were vast, not just versus slavery, but when he died they find out he'd been involved in almost a hundred other organizations, most of which he invented, most of which he formed himself. To, to, for, for animal rights, for, against gambling, against you know, all sorts of things all over, uh, in not just England, but India and Africa uh, as well. But we mustn't think he did this alone. He was part of an intentional community of 15 other couples, and a bunch of single people, called the Clapham Group, because he met in Clapham, South London, uh, in a church, uh, the pastor of the church used the church twice a week on average from 1790 to 1830. That's 40 years, twice a week. He met with this group of people. They prayed together, they worshipped together, they discussed together, they strategized together. Much of which attributed to Wilberforce is very much dependent on what these people meant. Several of them were, were members of parliament as well. Uh, some, several of them had a lot of money, which they poured into uh, the projects that they decided on here. Uh, but but uh, uh, working in organization, prayer, encouragement, research, a lot of them did research for him, traveled with him, traveled instead of him, and so forth. Uh, so he, it, it's not alone. Solzhenitsyn, again, attributed his conversion to people who he was forcefully co in community with in prison. <laughs> uh, but you read about, his, about him and he had these long arguments with Christians. Uh, who were arguing with his Marxism, because he went into, his, into this gulag as a, as a convinced Marxist. Uh, but, but through this, day after day, and different one from one center to another, different people, uh, he, he, uh, he came to faith and attributes his, his conversion to the time with them. When he got out of the gulag, he developed a network of people who understood, or rather, who were part of a, an underground, who hid manuscripts for him, he hid He'd write whole manuscripts of a whole book on very, 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 very fine paper, write minuscule, hidden in time, in, in little in uh, tin cans and buried. And they would do it, for, bury it for him. And he told one of the them where to bury it, where, and he'd remember where it was found, uh, and smuggled, it, smuggled the manuscripts out of Russia into the hand of publishers in the West, uh, helped him do research, 
lobbied for publishing his work in, in Russia and provided hiding place for him when you need hiding places. I mean, a huge network that he had after he'd gotten out. Uh, again, you see what I'm saying? We might have never heard of these people were it not for, for the people he, who were working with him. And Martin Luther King Jr., same deal, leading the civil rights movement, like Wilberforce, didn't do it alone. He was constantly at work building and working with communities around the civil rights issue. Southern Christian Leadership Conference was his close group, but he's forever surrounded by pastors with his same vision and cooperating with him. Uh, it's intriguing to me that uh, going out and read about this with Fanny, uh, about Fannie Lou Hamer, who was part of the part of this uh, whole uh, the civil rights movement. That they before going out to march before. Uh, to march non-violently against police dogs, police with dogs, uh, clubs, and water cannons, they would meet and sing gospel songs together for an hour, sometimes two hours, and then they'd feel ready to go out and march. A number of people have said that <clears throat> they never would have done it without those times of singing together. So Martin Luther King's contributions to enormous aspiration in the African-American community. We've been going to an African-American church for the last 25 years. The role he has as a source of aspiration is amazing for, for African-American people, and for all of us, hopefully, uh, his courage and his commitment to justice. And it's, it's impossible to measure it because it's still going on and, and, uh, and is powerful. Okay, I will end just with um, the visionary of Isaiah, uh, vision of God that he heard in the temple is holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, what I'm trying to say, if we let God be God, we can see his lordship in all of life, be inspired by it, live out that glory ourselves in some way, together with our brothers and sisters. I will end there. And um, Maybe we have some time for discussion. Uh, yes, Sarah, can you sing out loud? Maybe you don't need a mic. On the dishwashing, I've heard that no husband ever got shot while doing dishes. That might be true. That might be true. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite a big claim, so I'm not sure. <laughs> about a good point yes any others like to uh, have yes sorry um, uh, thank you so much for this I completely agree with the sacred this was explained so well I'm just wondering if you could help with the distinction between um, the Christian idea the, the kind of false theological idea of seeing the sacred secular split and the understanding of what secularism and secularity are, like Charles Taylor kind of discussion of secular age. Because, you know, I feel like those often get blurred when talking about something like Christian music. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry, uh, secular music. Yeah. Um, but uh, is there something that's saying, et cetera, et cetera? And I'm just thinking of how that relates to the formation of desires, like James Smith writes about. But, um, yeah, I'm just wondering the distinction between secular and secularity. Yeah, really I kind of hold up my hands and give up. 
um, when I, when I uh, to, to give a, the kind of answer that you may that you might want, uh, because I w- I just want to ask anyone who uses the word secular, tell me what you mean, because it means all sorts of different things. Charles Taylor uses it in a very positive way, as we should. What he means is a lot of life is secular life, uh, meaning it's not dealing directly with eternal things, but dealing with housing, economic growth, so on, and, and isn't unspiritual at all, uh, but is just, in other words, the division is, is in a different place, and we just have to ask people, what do you mean? Or if we, as I tried to do today, I said, by, I'm using sacred and secular, but I'm meaning it in a very specific way, and, and uh, that's get very dangerous when we talk about you know, secular music, because some people will think that means sinful music. And, and we just need to say, okay, what do we mean? Uh, Secularism, isn't there such a thing? I've had a conversation with Andrew Fellows multiple times of, of um, a secular, secularism as a kind of a, an unhelpful, yeah, well, oriented mindset. Yeah, I mean, he would, he would mean by that, uh, the way I would sometimes mean it as well, secularism seen as as uh, an anti-Christian, anti-theistic drift and, and, and predisposition in society. And, and we need to just say what we mean by that. And, and, and uh, Oz Guinness, for example, will distinguish between secularism, which means what I just said for him, and secularization, which for him is a sociological term having to do with what the Industrial Revolution has done to remove things uh, into the area of Tech, be able to be able to be controlled by technology, which were otherwise uh, we would pray to God for. Um, before we had uh, uh, all medical treatments, we would we, all we could do is pray. And the process of secularization by which we have antibiotics and so on, that that uh, now we are in control of it. So again, I want to. I, I, I'm really scared of giving a general, a generic definition of any of these words that say, "What do you mean?" Yeah. And let's be clear what we mean. So, so. Thank you. All right. Yes. Any other things we got? Yes. Sing out loud. Take this question in whatever direction you want, but wouldn't want to bring it back to letting God be God. But what's your favorite question of Jesus right now? Whether it's something you're challenged with right now or related to this. I would I would want to think about that for a while. <laughs> uh, but um, one of my favorite ones certainly is is uh, in Matthew, what is it, 22 or something like this. He's giving people, because it just tweaks me somehow, what, what he's doing. He's, 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 uh, he quotes Psalm 110 about God, God who, um, oh, I, I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, he, he basically gives them a, a, a as he states it, a, a contradiction in the Bible. Uh, if, if God, uh, if someone is the Lord of David, how can he be David's son? Okay? From some, you know, David's son was Absalom, da, 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 da. Not, not David's Lord. How could someone be, you know, the, the, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. Uh, how could someone possibly be David's son and David's Lord? Uh, and you'd say, good grief. Uh, how could it possibly be true? Uh, and it must be a, a flat contradiction of the Bible. Uh, but what you know is the only answer to that is if it's if uh, God incarnate 
is incarnate as a son of David and still is still God. Uh, and, and so the only answer to that is the full doctrine of the incarnation, which he's leaving them at least to be softened to. Him. He doesn't give them the whole answer, but, but any, the only way out of the contradiction, which they surely don't want, a contradiction in the scripture, because they, they'd memorize every letter of the scripture, and so, and, and, uh, is, is, um, is gonna be a, that's going to be a problem for them. It's going to bug them. Uh, just the way for theological students you hand them a contradiction in the Bible and they will go and they will work and work and work and try and uh, figure it out Uh, I think he's given them something that's going to send them home and scratch their heads and scratch their heads anyway, a lot of his questions are things like that which which to me are really uh, uh, intriguing to to wrestle with does that make it I'm not sure if that was clear yes Uh, one type of conversation that I see in the church maybe that even the church is uh, the fragmentation between like a focus on uh, evangelism or like social justice. Could you talk a little bit about that? Those are like that's a big broad brush. Yeah. I you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I, but I think it's the it's the it's the fragmented sense that has a that, that sees those things in tension. You know, I, I see no tension between them. There's going to be a tension in our time and in where do we have gifts and where is the where am, is God leading me to spend my time or you to spend your time and you may feel very stressed to not have enough time to do everything you want to do but, but I don't see them I see them as comp, comp, complementing each other it's one of the reasons that evangelism is as difficult as it is is that we have done so poorly on social justice I mean I I had a conversation with one of our neighbors just a few weeks ago and just saying I've done a lot to argue that uh, this, the Declaration of Independence be equal, being created equal uh, and equal rights depends on God being the creator and you subtract God as creator from the Declaration of Independence and you have the, the equality there's no such thing as equality because people are not equal to each other on any measurable Measure. There's no way you can justify the equality of all people uh, unless there's a God there in whose sight they're, they're equal, because we're unequal with everything. And I was laying this out with this, our neighbor, uh, and it's, as, as a reason to believe that we really needed for liberal democracy and democracy to function, we needed a God there who is the creator and who, in whose uh, sight we were made in his image. And he leaned back and he said, How come all the people who believe that don't act on it? How come the evangelical Christians are the worst? Uh, because they see, he saw so little commitment to social justice and the sort of racial issues and so on. So I, I, whether he's right or not, I don't want that. That's another thing. I don't want to go there. Uh, but but uh, uh, the, 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 the point is that the two are mutually are, are interdependent. And, and they're going to be in conflict with it for us individually because we have a finite amount of time to spend, to, 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 to uh, work out. Uh, and we need to know what are our gifts, what are the opportunities God is opening for us. But I, I want to see them as interdependent. Uh, as they were, I mean, the big voices on the, I'll be talking about this in a, a workshop, but the big voices on social justice are the prophets. And, you know, Jesus who gives the Great Commission believed the prophets, you better believe. 
you know, and, and uh, it's, it's one voice, but it's, it's, it's a mistake to, to let ourselves be in a framework where we put those two against each other. There are Christians who believe only one, or work on only one, or only work on the other. That's, I mean, maybe that's okay for a certain, you know, a specialization of a certain uh, uh, Christian group. But it's very dangerous, I think, to be completely committed to one or the other. Um, yes, I. Uh, Sorry. Okay. No, I, I appreciated. Uh, I was interested in what you were saying about pursuing glory as an image bearer of God. Um, but I think it, it it's hard to wrap my mind around because so much of the time we associate pursuing glory with something that turns inward over time. Even in the Christian community, we've all seen people who set out with godly intentions. Uh, whether it be pastors or business leaders or others, and that pursuit of glory turns inward and selfish. Yeah. But I don't, at the same time, your, your talk made me think, like, what, what does it really mean to pursue glory? Kind of like Romans 2 talks about, uh, to those who persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. What would you say, how, how do we maintain that in a, in a healthy Godward way without it turning inward is my question. Yeah, really good question, and that's a life project. Uh, but the, the first, the first thing to imitate in, in Jesus is humility. But the idea of trans—it's a huge deal to convince people that humility is heroic. What? I mean, it's just not on the cards. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know whether Rob will mention it, will we'll, we'll, uh, remember it, but I lectured on, on heroism in Holland for a while, and I did, I, in a, at, at the Libri branch there, and I couldn't convince the Dutch people that heroism was not a, a lost word that's out of reach of the Christian because it's so geared to the heroism in the Greek culture, which is all self-explosion. Self, uh, and, and I wish I'd known that before, and I could have had a Try to uh, say, well, forget the word heroism, forget it, leave it alone, and and let's talk about about humility and honor, uh, maybe even glory is too. But I want to, I see, I want to salvage both those words because both those words are perfectly good words, and they have some they have some uh, uh, traction. Uh, but the whole thing is, how can we how can we grow to see humility as, as heroic in a society that just explodes with success as money as power as putting people in their place, and, and uh, it's huge. You're, you're absolutely right. And Christians, the minute they achieve a certain success, think that this is, and they go off the rails sexually, they go off the rails, they, they buy into the basic currency of American idols, American idolatry, uh, which is money, sex, and fame. And, and uh, uh, we just, they, they need people beside them to say, you know, the, the story that you always hear, the, the Roman conquering generals would get to ride through Rome in a triumphal procession with the army behind them. And whether this is true or not, by enough places, it's, it, it's a good idea anyway, whether it happened. But there would be a slave that would ride in the chariot with the general and, and, be, and repeat again and again and again all the way through the streets of Rome, you are mortal, you will die. You are mortal. You will die. You are mortal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think, you know, who needs to be told that? We all need to be told that. As humans, we're so into self-deception and, and so on. But that's what we need as Christians, I think.
we are mortal. Um, what we've done, if it's worth anything, is done by the grace of God, by God's mercy. And so, but that's a, that's a really enormous challenge, I think, for us. How are we doing time-wise? We, I think we've gone over our time. So. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreeconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.